So back in 1464 in Italy, a huge slab of marble was extracted from the Carrera quarries there in Tuscany, Italy. And it was uh, pulled out of the quarry in order uh, for an ongoing project to decorate the dome of the Florence Cathedral. If you've ever been to Italy, you see these beautiful uh, cathedrals. They're very ornate. They have a lot of marble um, statues. And, uh, and in this particular case, they were, uh, there had been a commission to set up these different figures from the Old Testament to decorate the Florence Cathedral there. And uh, a sculptor named Agostino di Duccio was commissioned for this project. Uh, and so they brought him this large stone of marble, and he took a couple looks at it and he said, uh, I can't do it. This marble is flawed. And so he backed out of the project. He said that the marble just had far too many uh, imperfections. And so, you know, they've got this huge, massive marble stone. And so it kind of sits there for 10 years and they kind of uh, try to re- restart the project. So they hire another sculptor and he backed out as well, saying the same thing. This, this stone is not uh, uh, good and uh, no, no sculptor would ever want to work with this. And so um, you can imagine a, a massive multi-ton over, weighing six tons was, was far too expensive, far too heavy. It's not like you can just put that out with the garbage. You know what I mean? And so it sat out in the elements for over a quarter of a century. Then in 1501, they hired a young 26-year-old sculptor. Maybe you've heard of him. His name's Michelangelo, kind of famous, kind of a big deal. And he picked up the project. And in three years, he completed one of the world's most famous sculptures known as the David, Michelangelo's David. Anybody seen it there in Florence? It's beautiful. You've seen it, Kevin? Oh, pictures. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right, pictures. That's okay. Um, There's nothing like seeing it in in person. It's one of the most famous sculptures in the world. And and, and it's interesting that an almost abandoned block of marble uh, uh, was slowly chiseled into one of the world's greatest works of art. And there's this famous, though it's probably fictional story, of an admirer who came up to Michelangelo, you know, who who loved his work and said, you know, how do you do it? Uh, What were you thinking as you started the project? What was your technique? How do you know exactly where to chisel? And Michelangelo replied with a shockingly simple response and said, listen, you know, I fixed my attention on the slab of raw marble. I studied it, sketched some, uh, a few pencil uh, drawings on it, and then I just chipped away all that wasn't David. And the admirer was stunned at the simplicity of his, of his technique, and so he pressed him a little bit further and said, no, really, like, how do you do this? And here's what Michelangelo famously, although probably didn't say, In every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action, and I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine see it. In other words, he's saying, you guys just see a block of marble. I see the, the, the work of art inside of the marble. And so my job is to chisel ever so slowly all that's not this work of art. Though fictional, Michelangelo's reply does beautifully describe the process of sculpting. You take this crude block of marble and it's chiseled away over and over so that beauty is revealed through what is removed. 
Do you notice that? It, there's beauty inside, but it's got all of this surrounding marble has to be removed. And it's a powerful metaphor to help us understand our passage this morning. Because in Genesis 29, you see two characters going through a really hard and difficult chiseling process known as character formation. They're going through the hard chiseling process of discipline. Now, when I say that word discipline, especially in our culture today, it can evoke all sorts of negative feelings because sometimes well-intentioned discipline goes too far and it actually enters into the realm of abuse. And that is surely something to categorically deny and, and, and not to condone, but that's not what I'm talking about here. There is a place for discipline in our life today. I'm talking about the kind of skilled and purposeful chiseling that removes certain flaws, that helps get rid of things so that beauty is revealed through what is removed. That's what discipline, good discipline, is aimed at. And in our passage this morning, we see Jacob and Leah going through this painful yet purposeful discipline process. The hammer and the chisel, think about it, they don't gently remove the marble. With every strike of the hammer, the chisel is actually cutting. I don't know if you've ever used a chisel before, but they're quite sharp. And, it, and, and, and it's supposed to remove material so that what is removed, after all of the removal process, what's, re, what's left is purposeful and beautiful. And so as the chisel cuts with the hand of a skilled sculptor, the process removes all the, the rough walls of marble to reveal the sculpture inside. Likewise, God uses people, he uses situations, he uses circumstances, all as a means of his loving discipline to form and shape our character. And that's my goal this morning, that as we look at this passage, we would become a people who trust God's purposeful hand in our lives as he disciplines and sculpts us into the image of Christ. And so we're going to look at the two primary characters in this passage this morning to see God's ways of discipline. First, we're going to see that God disciplines us by making our sin taste bitter. That's going to be our first point today, that God disciplines us by making our sin taste bitter. Jacob is a deceiver. We've already seen that in his life today, and today he's going to learn the bitterness of deception in his own life. And then second, we're going to see that God disciplines us by showing us that he is all we need. Leah has a, a hard and uh, somewhat tragic life and she learns through this painful process that only God can satisfy the longings of our heart. God will discipline us by showing us that he is all we need. So let's start together in verse 1 to see our first point that God disciplines us by making our sin taste bitter. In verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. And then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. And the stone covering the mouth's well was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put back the stone in its place over the mouth of the well. So if you remember um, from last week, G, uh, Jacob was in Bethel, and now he's leaving there with renewed energy. The Hebrew literally reads, he, he, reads, he picked up his feet and went. There was a, a pep in his step. 
And you might ask why. Well, if you remember from last week, Jacob has just met the Lord. Uh, he's had this incredible dream. The, the curtains of the visible realm have been pulled back and he saw this, this, uh, this stairway that reached all the way to heaven and he, and he learned that God, that he didn't have to build a stairway to climb his way to God. In fact, God had built this stairway to climb down to him, to meet him where he was. And in his grace, the Lord promised to give Jacob the gift of his presence, the security of his protection, and the abundance of his provision. In other words, God promised Jacob to be with him and to be for him wherever he goes. Even though at this point in his life, Jacob is a scoundrel. There's nothing really good about his life. He's not someone that you would want to model your life after. And God has come to him and said, I will be with you and for you. I've chosen you to be the covenant leader to bless the world through you. And it's important that we don't forget this as we step into this chapter because you're not going to hear the name of God mentioned at all in this passage. And it could be quite tempting to think God isn't present here. He's not at work here. Remember in Jacob's vision, he sees angels ascending and descending, coming and going down this ladder. And these angels coming and going are showing Jacob that he is at work even when you can't see it, even when you don't understand what's going on because angels don't go about their own agendas. They don't determine their own uh, uh, strategies. They, they are given directives from God. And so as he sees these angels going up and going down, Jacob is left with a very visible picture that God is at work. He is moving. He is doing things even when we can't See it. God is never sitting idle in the heavens. He's never bored going, you know, what am I going to do today? He's always at work weaving every single detail of every single situation and circumstance to accomplish his purposes. And it's with this vision that Jacob gets up and he continues on his journey to the east towards Haran. And we just read that he came to a well. There were shepherds there and sheep just kind of waiting around, sitting there. And Moses is careful to point out that this well in particular has a rather large stone on top of the well. It's probably there to keep dust and debris out or to keep people from stealing the well. But whatever the case, the shepherds would gather there and they would wait till there were several of them because this stone was so large, it would require all of them to kind of lift it up so they could water their sheep. Now look at verse four. Jacob said, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we're from Haran. And he said, oh, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, yeah, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, his Ra Rachel's daughter is coming with the sheep. And so as Jacob comes upon this well, he strikes up a conversation with the shepherds and to his joyful surprise, he finds out they're from Haran. That's exactly where he's headed. And he's, he's going there to meet uh, his uncle Laban. And they're like, oh, we know Laban. And he's going, this is incredible. I, I've been on this journey and I finally found the place I needed to go. And not only that, but look, his daughter is coming. Now just imagine Jacob in this moment. He has been fleeing from his homeland because his brother Esau wants to kill him. And he's moving towards a direction, a place he's never been before. He doesn't have GPS on his phone. He's trying to find where Uncle Laban lives and he comes upon the place. And he finds people who know him and his daughter is coming his way. His cousin is on, her, on his way. For Jacob, it seems like things are finally starting to work out for him. Most of his life, things haven't gone well for him. And now things are finally working out. 
And if you remember from our time in Genesis 24, this sounds a lot like a story that we've already heard about how Abraham sent his servant out to find Isaac a wife and how his servant came to this well and Rebekah came out to the well. You know, families tell stories, don't they? Kids will often ask, hey, mom and dad, how did you guys meet? Tell us how you guys came together. And Jacob would have heard the story over and over about how Abraham's servant went out and how he had gone and prayed to the Lord for a sign and how Rebekah came and watered the camels just like his servant had prayed for. And he was like, oh my goodness, this is probably her. And they go back to her family's house and the servant tells the story of all that he has done and all about Abraham and his journey. And, and it seems right to them and to Rebekah that she should go and be Isaac's wife. He would have known this story and just imagine him. He comes to a well, and Laban's daughter is coming. He's going, oh my goodness, this is working out just like it did for my parents. Verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the, the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. With all of this emotion, Jacob sees Rachel and he's overwhelmed. And, and in, in a feat of extraordinary strength, he removed that large stone all by himself. Normally it would take several shepherds to come together to remove this stone, but he's so overwhelmed with uh, the sense of God's presence and everything starting to work out for him. He just like uses his man strength and lifts up that stone all by himself. We're also told that he kissed Rachel. Now I don't want to, I don't think we're supposed to think of this as like a romantic makeout scene. This isn't the notebook. That's not what's going on here. That would have been unthinkable really outside of the bounds for this culture to just walk up to a woman you don't know and start kissing her. By the way, guys, this is not a great way to meet women, just walking up to someone on Moody Street and start kissing her and then weeping and crying out loud. It's much more likely this is a familial kind of kiss, an embrace between relatives. The Italians in the room know exactly what I'm talking about. He's overwhelmed by emotion. Something's finally going his way. Over his lifetime, his decisions have played a significant role in tearing his family apart. And after a long journey, he's found his family. Potentially, he's found his wife. We also see that Rachel's not weirded out by it, which is another sign that nothing is, uh, uh, inappropriate is going on here. He knows that God has promised him his presence, provision, and protection by God's grace. He's found the well. He's found people who know Laban. He's found his family. And look what happens. Remember, Rachel had gone to tell her family, verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban his whole story, all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And Jacob stayed with him for a month. Rachel goes and tells Laban, her father, Uncle Laban's excited, he, he runs to meet him and he takes one look at Jacob and says, yeah, you are my kinsman, you're my bone and my flesh. And after about a month of working for Laban, Laban comes to Jacob and says, 
Because you are my kinsmen, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. We're told in verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in appearance and form. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, this is speaking to Laban, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. He's very specific there. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man, so stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So Laban says, listen, he's been there about a month working for him. He says, your family, that doesn't mean you should work for free. You're, you're, you're owed wages as well. So tell me, what do you want to get paid for for working for me? And Jacob thinks about it, and we're told that Laban has two daughters. The older was Leah, the younger was Rachel. And we're told that Leah had weak eyes. And we're not really sure exactly what that means. It's the only time this phrase uh, comes up in the Bible. Um, some think it, think it means that she lacked a certain sparkle or fire or glow in her eyes that was, a, that was kind of prized for beauty in the ancient Near East. You know, every culture kind of has their own um, slightly specific definition of what is beautiful, right? Uh, whatever it was, Leah was not attractive. We can tell that because it says her eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in appearance and form. Whatever the case, uh, Leah was considered unattractive. Jacob desired to marry Rachel. He had eyes for her. She was beautiful both in appearance and in form. Now in this culture, it was customary. If you were going to go marry some, a, a daughter, you would uh, have a dowry. So you, when you came up to the father-to-be, you didn't come empty-handed. You had to come with, a, with a, the, the bride price, this dowry, and say, listen, for your, hand, your daughter's hand in marriage, I will give you uh, this certain amount of money. So husbands-to-be would pay the father of the bride a price for his daughter's hand in marriage. Now, if you remember, Jacob has no money to his name. Remember the last time we saw him, he didn't even have a pillow. That's how poor this kid is. And so he says, listen, I don't have any money to my name, but here's what I do have. I got a strong back. I don't know if you heard the story. I could lift that heavy stone. So I'll work for you for seven years. Seven years. Now, a typical dowry in that time would have been about three years. So Jacob, I mean, goes for it, right? He offers a dowry more than double the typical price. Laban, who's the opportunist here, quickly agrees to the deal. He's getting double the price that his daughter would be worth. And it says that to Jacob, those seven years went by. It said it seemed to him like a day because of the love that he had for Rachel. Last time we saw Jacob, think about where he was. He was all alone. He was on the run in the middle of nowhere. Now he's with family. He's got a job. He's got a bride-to-be things are starting to finally go his way. So after those seven years, Jacob came to Laban and said, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the, of the place and made a feast. So the seven years were completed. Jacob comes and says, okay, it's time. The wedding preparations were made. Now in that culture, a typical wedding celebration lasted for an entire week. 
the first day, that would have been like the wedding ceremony. So there would have been these processions of the bride. There would have been the reading of the marriage covenant. There would have been a feast that was attended by the families and all the people of the entire community. And at the end of the first day, the groom would take his bride to his tent and they would consummate the marriage. And then after that, the feasting and celebration would continue for another um, six more days. And so, so far, so good. Everything is going according to plan. Verse 23. But in the evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. So you've got to remember, because you might be thinking, how in the world? <laughs> how does somebody mistake somebody like that? You've got to remember, there's no electricity. Under the cover of darkness and likely with much wine at play from all the feasting and everything else going on that day, Laban is able to swap out Rachel for Leah so that in the light of the morning, behold, it was Leah. In light of this, the reader, like you and I, as we're reading this passage, understands the play of words on Laban. Remember when Laban first met Jacob, he said, you are my bone and my flesh. In other words, Jacob and Laban, yes, they're kinsmen, they're family, but they're also cut from the same cloth. Jacob has been out-Jacobed by Laban. All we know of Jacob really at this point is that he's the, a deceiver, right? Everything he's done in his life to get to where he is, he's achieved by the means of deception. And so Laban sees Jacob and he's like, a deceiver, huh? Well, I can out-deceive you. He's been out-Jacobed by Laban. The deceiver has been deceived, and the irony here is super thick. If you remember, Jacob pretended to be his older brother Esau, and his con worked because his father was going blind. His father had been drinking, and he was able to trick Isaac into thinking that he was the older brother to get the blessing. Now Laban has deceived Jacob by swapping his younger daughter for his older daughter and the con worked because Jacob was blinded from the darkness of the night and he too had been drinking. See, I almost wonder when Jacob told Laban his whole story, I wonder if he told him all of that and Jacob and Laban was like, that sounds really good. I think I might use that plan. We don't know that, but either way, Jacob knows that Laban is behind all of this trickery and he confronts him. Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, well, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and, we'll give you, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Laban tells Jacob, well, in our country, the younger never goes before the older. You can think about him hearing those words. They would have cut him. It's like he said, hey man, I don't know how you guys do it from where you're from, but around here, the younger never goes before the older. That may have worked where you come from, but we don't play that game here, bud. So he says, complete the week of this one. Celebrate, be Leah's husband. And then after that week, I'll give you Rachel, but you're going to have to serve me for another seven years. And as the words leave Jacob's lips, why have you deceived me? His very own words convict him. See, he's been a deceiver his whole life, and now he gets a taste of his own bitter medicine. His deception has caught up with him, 
and it's bitter. Laban shows himself to be the master con artist. He's unloaded his unwanted, unlovable daughter, and he's also received 14 years of free labor. Now here's the lesson we need to learn. It is 100% true that Laban acted selfishly, sinfully, and maliciously. His actions are without a doubt sinful. The way he robbed Jacob of another seven years of his life, the deplorable way that he pitted sister against sister, used them as means to his ends, all of it is 100% sinful and deplorable. Don't miss that. And yet, God is not absent here. God is using it for good in Jacob's life. See, that's what God does. It's, it, it's, t- it's tempting to think that because God's name isn't mentioned here or that because sin is involved in some way that God is absent in this chapter. But God isn't absent in any chapter of the entire Bible. Just because his name isn't mentioned doesn't mean that God isn't absent It also doesn't mean that God is punishing Jacob either. Neither of these are true. But what is true is that Jacob needed to learn a painful and difficult lesson. He needed to taste deception for himself to see its bitterness. See, God promised to be with him and for him. But when God promises to be with us and for us, it also means that God is determined to complete the work he started in us. He doesn't just save us and leave us where we are. God is all about doing that chiseling work of sanctification in his life. This is the disciplining work of the Lord to teach Jacob the bitterness of his sin. So it's, we got a couple of true things going on. On one hand, it's true, Jake, uh, Laban acted sinfully and maliciously, and yet it's also true that God was working purposefully And these aren't mutually exclusive truths. It's not either or. In fact, it's God's kindness to take the sinful acts of others and to transform them into his chiseling work that forms and shapes our character. How unloving would it be if God just allowed people to sin against us and not use it at all in our lives? So people sin against us. We suffer, and yet God doesn't leave it there. He takes it and says, I'm not going to let it just be purposeful, meaningless suffering. I'm actually going to take what was intended for evil, and I'm going to work it out for good. That's what God does. He's always taking what was intended for evil and turning it into good. This entire story reminds me of those famous words of Thomas Watson who said, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. See, Jacob needed to learn that deception was bitter. He needed to see that his own sin was bitter so that God would become sweet to him. That doesn't mean God condones Laban's actions. It simply means that what Laban intended for pure evil God is transforming it for good. That's what he's doing. That's the, if, you, if you've ever read through the whole book of Genesis, you know how that, that's how the book ends, right? Joseph tells his brothers their evil plans to uh, try to kill him and sell him into slavery. They're evil, but what? What they intended for evil, 
God turned for good. And that's not just a theme in in Joseph's life. It's really a theme verse for the whole book that God uses every situation, every circumstance, and he uses it to accomplish his purposes. So is Jacob a victim of Laban's deceit? Yes, 100%. Jacob is a victim in one sense in this passage, but it's also true that God uses it to discipline and to shape him. Our suffering, even the consequences of our sin, is never purposeless and pointless. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that God uses all of it for our good. We've used this verse a lot because it it sheds light in these characters that we've come to in the book of Genesis. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things. Can you guys say that? All things. So including this, including Jacob being deceived, all things. God uses all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Jacob is undergoing the chiseling work of discipline. And the Bible tells us that that is actually a sign of, the, of, of God's fatherly love. Hebrews 12 says this, starting in verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses us as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse seven, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, he's talking about earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you see what the writer is saying? He's saying, listen, the fact that you're being disciplined by God is proof of your adoption as sons. If you look in your life and you see no evidence of God's disciplining work in your life, that should cause concern. Because he's saying if there's no discipline, You're an illegitimate son. As a father, I have a right and responsibility to discipline my children. I don't have a right and responsibility to discipline children that aren't mine. The fact that I don't discipline kids that aren't mine is showing I'm not their father. But as my kids can attest, yeah, our father does discipline us, which is showing the evidence of my love and my right and responsibility as their father. And the writer of Hebrews says, we all know that. Everybody knows that. Everyone has had a father in their life who has disciplined them, not perfectly, but disciplined them for their good. Much more. Don't we have a heavenly father who disciplines us? And his discipline is evidence and proof of his love. Friends, so many times when things aren't going our way, our immediate impulse is to pray and ask for deliverance, isn't it? 
Things are going our way and say, Lord, deliver us from these circumstances. And it is not wrong to ask for that. In fact, we should continue to ask for that. Why? Because the Psalms are full of prayers for deliverance. So praise God. When things aren't going your way, voice those concerns to the Lord. Ask and pray, Lord, deliver me from my enemies. Deliver me from these hard and difficult circumstances. But at the same time, what I want this passage to do this morning is to add a category into our prayers of discipline. So not either or, I'm saying both and. Ask God for deliverance, but at the same time, also ask, Lord, are you trying to teach me something here? Are you using these hard and difficult circumstances to train and shape and form my character? Could it be that there are sins in my life? Could it be that there are uh, 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 desires in my life that need to be chiseled and worked out? And might it be that you're using this hard chiseling situation to form and shape my character? Seven Mile, can we be a people who pray Both of those things. Both of those things are necessary prayers. So yes, pray, Lord, deliver me from my circumstances, but also pray, Lord, use these circumstances for your will and for your good purposes in my life. It's both. Deliver me and discipline me in whatever ways you see fit. God is a loving father who disciplines his children so that we would be trained by it for our good. And hear me, his discipline is not the same as punishment because for God's children, Jesus has already bore your punishment. Don't get those two things confused. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ Jesus has already bore the condemning wrath of God. And his his discipline is not driven by his anger or his wrath. Again, how do we know that? Why? Christ has absorbed all of that wrath. That's what Isaiah 55, 3 tells us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Our sin deserves piercing and crushing and chastisement and punishment, but all of that was placed on Christ. So what we get to experience is healing and the fatherly love and discipline of the Lord. So God's discipline is not meant to punish us for our sin. Christ was already punished, but his discipline comes for his great love for us, and it's proof of your adoption. It's a tangible evidence and sign that he loves you. In love, God would not let Jacob stay as he was. In love, God will not let you stay as you are. That would be completely unloving. He loves us too much to allow us to remain in our sin, and he is so committed to your holiness, that he will use whatever means necessary to make us holy. Discipline is often painful, but the purposes for it are our good so that we become more and more like Christ. So brother and sister, think about your life right now. What difficulties, what circumstances are present in your life right now that God may be using as a means of his loving discipline. 
And you notice I use that word maybe using. I don't know the purposes and plans of God. I don't know why every single situation and circumstance is happening to you. People come to me and say all the time, you know, I'm going through this difficult situation. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? I don't know the mind of God. All I know to do is help create categories of thinking in our mind. To going, maybe God is bringing these situations and circumstances in your life for his discipline, for your good, to wring out some sinfulness in your life so that it become taste bitter, to change and affect and shape desires of your heart. Add to your prayers of deliverance. Lord, may your will be done. Teach me and train me for your will. God disciplines his children by making our sin taste bitter. That's our first point. Point number two, God disciplines us by showing us that he is all we need. Verse 28, so Jacob did so and completed her week. And then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. And so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Jacob agrees to the additional seven years. He does get to marry Rachel right away, but he's got to serve another seven years. And at the end of the week, Jacob was married to both Leah and Rachel. And as we would expect, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. He favored Rachel over Leah. Now just think about Leah for a moment. She was a burden to her father, always outshined by her more beautiful sister, Rachel. You can imagine suitors coming by the house, paying no regard to Leah, but always wanting the hand of Rachel. And now this pattern of neglect continues in this new marriage to Jacob. Now, we don't know all the details of the plan for Laban's trickery, like how complicit Leah was in the whole matter, but here's what I know. Leah's sense, sense of worth had to be extremely low. She felt unseen, unheard, and unloved her entire life. But there is someone in this passage who saw Leah. It was the Lord. He saw her situation, and he was moved to do something about it. And here we see that the Lord opened her womb to bear children. Rachel was barren, but Leah's womb was open. So here's what happened. Verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again, she conceived and bore a son, and she said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Now I want us to notice here that with every son, she chooses a Hebrew name that expresses her longing for Jacob. Reuben sounds like the Hebrew word for to see. So she says, Listen, now I've borne him a son. Maybe. My husband will see me and love me. Simeon, the second son, is taken from a Hebrew word that means to hear. She's saying, now that I've born another son, maybe my husband will hear me and finally love me. And this third son, Levi, is taken from a Hebrew word that means attached. What she's saying is, now I've born him a third son. Maybe, finally, 
my husband will be attached to me. You gotta realize in this culture, having sons was a big deal. Leah has like hit for the cycle here. She's, she's given him three sons in a row. And she's saying, I'm the perfect wife. I have done my duty to bore him sons. Certainly he'll see me and hear me and be attached to me. And Jacob never developed eyes for her. She was looking to Jacob for affirmation. She was looking for, to Jacob for approval. She was looking to Jacob to feel that emptiness and void she's experienced in her whole life. She's saying, if Jacob would just love her, then finally, finally, she'd have significance and worth. But it never comes. Jacob never sees her. Jacob never hears her. Jacob never becomes attached to her. Jacob never gives her his heart. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. So we see Leah conceives again, but this time, this time something changes. Did you notice that? Did you see a, a shift in her language? She names this new son Judah, which sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. This time, a breakthrough happens. She stops looking to Jacob to be seen, to be heard, to be attached to, and what does she do? She directs her attention to the Lord. This time, she says, I will look to the Lord. She spent so much of her life waiting for Jacob to love her and accept her, and it kept her soul in prison. But this time, this time she turned her gaze to the Lord. And I think there's so much wrapped up in those words this time. This time, she's saying, listen, I am so tired of looking to somebody else for my significance. My father Laban never gave it to me. Rachel, my sister, never gave it to me. Jacob, my husband, never gave it to me. So this time, this time, I'm turning to the Lord. Now, there's something big going on here. Leah does not even recognize all of it. But Judah is going to become a great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. We'll find out later in the book of Genesis that this line of promise that we've been tracing from, from, uh, from Seth down through the line is going to come through this child, Judah. When he receives his blessing, he's gonna be told the scepter, this sign of power and authority, the kingly line is going to come through Judah. And through his line will come the king of kings, Jesus Christ himself. In other words, God looked at Leah. When everyone else saw nobody, when everyone else saw this homely, weak-eyed girl that nobody wanted, God saw Leah and said, you're beautiful. God looked at Leah and said, you're so beautiful. In fact, you're going to one day become the great, great, great grandmother of Jesus. Laban and Jacob did not have the last word in her story. God did. God chose the girl that nobody wanted to become a mother of Christ. See, Leah needed to see that nobody else could truly satisfy 
And God took her difficult, and I would say even hellish circumstances of her life to show her that God is all she really needs to have a life of significance and purpose. Friends, what are you looking for? What are you looking to for your significance and your purpose and worth? Notice I didn't ask, are you looking to something for your significance, purpose, and worth? Because every single person here, myself included, looks to people, places, things, accolades, situations, circumstances for our significance, meaning, and purpose. What are those things in your life that you look to and particularly ask, what are those things that you look to that always seem just out of reach, that no matter how hard you try, no matter all of your striving, you, you never seem to be able to get it? And could it be that God is keeping those things just out of your reach so that you would come to the place, come to the end of yourself where you would say, this time, this time, I'm gonna stop reaching for those things and I'm gonna turn my gaze and attention to the Lord. See, friends, God doesn't merely save us and leave us as we are. That would be incredibly unloving. He is so committed to completing the work he started. Hear this truth from Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so in order to see his work come to a completion in your life, he is a committed father who will surely and patiently and steadfastly discipline you and I for our good. Sometimes that means you are going to go through hard and difficult situations and circumstances so that your sin and sin patterns in your life will become bitter so that you'll see how sweet Christ really is. And it will sometimes mean that sometimes there'll be things in your life that you are pushing and striving for, but God in his love will keep them just out of your reach so that you will turn your gaze to him, so that you learn the more, the more beautiful lesson that he is all you really need.